Welcome, everybody, and thank you for allowing me to be with you again this weekend as we continue in our journey through our series called Upside Down. Now, before we get any further, I just want to remind all of our students, sixth grade and under, I hope you're participating in our Sermon Buck Store by taking a little quiz at the end of the service, the end of the message, and then earning some points so there'll be some prizes that you can claim, okay? So make sure you're doing that. Now, I want to let you know that we only have two more, I call them episodes, left in this series called Upside Down. Next fall, we're going to resume the series, the second season, so to speak, of Upside Down and continue our journey through the book of Acts. But I felt, given the circumstances we are in these days, we take a little break this summer, and in June and July, we're going to be looking at two little letters written by the Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit inspired him to write the believers in a place called Thessalonica, and the letters are simply called 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Now, the reason we're going to do that is because it's going to do two things for you. It's going to inspire you, and it is also going to intrigue you. I think these little letters are going to inspire you because they help us gain confidence, know how to have confidence in times of uncertainty. And boy, are these times of uncertainty. Secondly, they're intriguing because Paul deals quite a bit there with the content as well as the condition of this world prior to the return of the king, our King Jesus. So if you're interested in things about the second coming of prophecy, you won't want to miss that series. But let's get back into the last couple of episodes we have right now, and let's go to Acts chapter 3 for today, to what one man has titled being a lame excuse for preaching the gospel. Listen to this. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day, he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, Look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then, walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade, where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Now, when Dr. Luke penned what we call the Book of Acts, which is really the Acts of Jesus and Holy Spirit in the beginning of the church, we know that he was writing it to a friend of his by the name of Theophilus. He also wrote his gospel, known as the Gospel of Luke, to Theophilus and told us the reason why he wrote these letters. It was so that Theophilus could be certain of who Jesus is and be certain 
of the mission that Jesus came to fulfill. Now in writing the book of Acts, he wants us all to be confident in the fact that the church is not a human organization. It is a supernaturally inspired body, an organic body of followers who are following Jesus and in doing so are being moved by Jesus and the Holy Spirit to continue that supernatural ministry throughout the world till Jesus Christ returns. So why of all the stories and all the incidents that Luke could have chosen to talk about, did he choose to tell us a story about the healing of a crippled beggar? Have you ever thought what it must have been like for that crippled beggar there at the gate every day? He'd been like that his whole life, crippled. His ankles, his feet deformed from what we can tell in the text. He never had an opportunity to stand, to walk, to run, to jump, to play. And I'm sure that as he got older, there was no meaningful employment for him. And so he had to rely on others to carry him to that gate, perhaps almost every day of the week, and, and sit there with his arm raised up and his hand open, begging for alms as the worshipers went by him to make their way into the temple itself. And don't think that he was alone because he wasn't. There would have been many other beggars there as well with arms raised and hands extended looking for some coinage in order for them to be able to make a living. Can you imagine what that would be like? Put yourself in that circumstance for just a few moments. Would you feel discouraged? Would you be envious? Might you be even be angry at God and at life itself that you had such physical suffering and such difficulties? Well, if you think that's bad, understand that he also was experiencing spiritual difficulties because his deformity or whatever was wrong with his feet and his ankles made him impure, unfit to go past that gate into the actual temple precincts themselves. And so he was always on the other side with a barrier that was keeping him, in a sense, from coming close to God. All he could ever do was hear the description of what it was like on the other side of the wall. Or if somebody carried him far enough and high enough on the Mount of Olives, he might be able to get a look from the distance at what the temple precincts were like and the place where the Holy of Holies was located. As the saying goes, he was so close and yet he was so far. Why? Why does Luke tell us that story? Why does he point out that incident? I think it's pretty simple. I think it's because Luke wants us to understand that some problems in life can only be overcome by a miracle from God. Some problems in life can only be overcome by a miracle from God. Now, you yourself or you may know someone for whom that statement is absolutely true. It may be a physical issue or something else, but they or you have exhausted every means to deal with it, to treat it, to resolve it. And you found yourself muttering or thinking or praying or saying, it is going to take a miracle from God for this situation to turn around for this to change, for me not to meet an early death, or whatever it might be. Speaking of miracles, have you ever wondered to yourself 
why miracles are spoken about in the scriptures themselves? I mean, what's the, what's the purpose for talking about miracles? What, what are the miracles supposed to point to? Well, Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors and, and uh, theologians, uh, talks about what miracles point to. And I want to share a couple of things that he says, and then I want to expand on them as I do so. So, for instance, number one, the points of a miracle, every God-given miracle points up. Every God-given miracle points up. You say, well, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that it, it points to God. It draws the attention upwards towards God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and about verse 36, Jesus is dealing with some of his critics who are having a hard time with what he teaches and the miracles that he's doing. And he says to them, my teaching and my miracles are for one reason, and that is they're there to point to the fact that the Father has sent me. I am, in other words, the Messiah. Well, when Peter and John encounter this crippled beggar, and Peter offers to him the power of Jesus, and he's raised up, and he can literally walk. He begins to dance and jump, and he hangs on to them and follows them into the temple precincts, to the uh, Solomon's Colonnade, a place he'd never been before. He is so excited and, and praising God that, it, that crowds began to gather around. They knew who this guy was. Many of them passed him by on a regular basis and threw some coins at him. There was no denying that a miracle had taken place at this point in time. Now, Peter and John, at that point, could have said, pretty impressive, isn't it? You ought to see what else we can do. In fact, we're going on the road with a healing crusade. Or come attend our seminar, and we'll teach you how to do these kinds of things. But that's the furthest thing from their mind. Grabbed by the Spirit, Peter just says, hey, wait a minute. This isn't about us. We didn't do this. God just did this. The power of Jesus did this. Look what he says again in verse 16 of chapter 3. We've gone a little further in the passage. He says, through faith in the name of Jesus. And when, and when you hear someone say the name of Jesus, and in the, in the Middle East to this very day, oftentimes when you speak in the name of someone, you're speaking in their authority. Through the faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. In other words, what Peter is trying to say to him, I think, is something like this. Look, look this is proof that, that the words we speak and the power that Jesus has given to us is coming from him and him alone because we're only doing what Jesus would have done. These are the miracles that Jesus did that we're doing and he's giving us the power to do it. So all the glory and all the attention is going to him. Now, I personally have no problem praying for miracles in other people's lives or even my own life. Actually, I am the result of a prayer by my grandmother when I was very young. I should have died of typhoid fever, but she somehow knew something was wrong and prayed for my healing. And at the time that my parents got the telegram that she knew something was wrong, that she was praying, that very high fever that they were sure was going to kill me was broken and I was completely healed and made well. So I believe in miracles. But when I pray for a miracle, I always keep two things in mind. 
The first is that miracles are there to serve God's purpose. They're not an end in themselves. So when I pray for a miracle, I always say to the person, or if I'm praying for myself, we're going to pray this in accordance with God's purpose. God can suspend the, the, the uh, laws of nature. He can intervene and do something very miraculous if it fits his purpose. But understand this, that sometimes our patient and godly endurance of pain and suffering is an even greater miracle than when we're delivered from it. Because people look at us and they see our godly attitude in the midst of our hardship and they can't understand that because they can't imagine themselves being that way and we get to point to Christ. Secondly, I always pray that whatever God does, he would glorify himself. I don't have the power to heal. You don't have the power to heal, but Christ does. And sometimes he chooses us to be the channels through which that gift is manifested and is used. But that takes us to something else that's very important here. And that is this, that the points of a miracle, every God-given miracle points up, every God-given miracle points forward. It points in a direction, not just up, but forward. Look what it says in verse 8. He jumped up, this guy who'd been, you know, crippled his whole life, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. And if you keep reading, it says he was clutching them. He's hanging on to them. Because I got a sense that, that in a way he may have been a little bit unstable on his legs and his feet. Because, I mean, since birth, he's never done this before. He's not going to let go of the ones who brought him this great miracle and this great hope in his life. See, but what do you mean when you say it points forward. Well, if, you, if you've ever looked at the miracles in the Bible, you'll notice that, that many of them alleviate suffering or trouble. And they put a person in a far better condition than they ever were before. In that sense, they are pointing forward and giving us a picture of what God intends for the whole creation to experience someday. See, where are you getting that from? Look what we read over here in verse 21 of Acts. It says, For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. And by the way, that should be Acts chapter 3, verse 21. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his Holy Spirit. And I want you to focus on this word, restoration. And to help us understand that, what I want to do is I, I want to diagram something for us here. So let me go to our, my board here and uh, let me diagram this. If you want to draw with me, you're welcome to do that. But let's create, let's call this a, a timeline here, okay? And at the very beginning, we'll put B, this is the beginning, right? You have God, and then God creates everything that, that we know and see today. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Everything is good, right? And then, unfortunately, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and we, against God, and we have what we call the fall of humanity. And so sin was born, so to speak. You follow time, Old Testament, you get the New Testament, and all of a sudden you come to this point 
of redemption or the cross. This is where Christ dies for the sinfulness of humanity. He pays the price for sin so we can be forgiven and reconciled to God again. And then we know that someday there's going to be an end to this world as we know it today, all right? And then there's going to be NB, a new beginning. Now, you and I, we live somewhere in this time frame. I don't know where on this time frame. I kind of hope it's like right here. I would love for Jesus to come like right now. How about you? All right. But we're somewhere in here. And during this entire time, there are these miracles that are taking place where people are being healed, where troubles are being solved, where God is doing restorative and powerful things. And all of these are meant to point to a day when what we call miracles are the norm. No more sickness, no more death, no more illness, no more tears, no more sorrow. So every time you see a miracle in the Bible or a modern-day miracle, a God-given miracle, it is pointing toward what it's going to be like someday when we all experience that restoration in our hearts and, and into our lives as well. So I want you to keep that in mind as we think about what this means when it says that miracles point forward, all right? Let's move on and let's look now at a third aspect of miracles, and that is every God-given miracle points inward. So we've got pointing up, we've got pointing forward, and now we've got pointing inward. And the question is, what does that mean? That every God-given miracle points inward. Well, miracles are signs that God uses oftentimes to point us to a greater reality, who he is and what we ultimately need in our lives. Let me give you an example of it. We've talked about it before in the Gospel of Luke. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 5, we have the story of some men who bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus for Jesus to heal. They bring him to Galilee and to Capernaum, and the problem is that... Uh, Everybody's in and around Jesus' house. They can't get through the crowd. So remember what they did? They climbed up on top of Jesus' roof. They began tearing apart the thatch and the clay. Can't imagine the mess it was making there in front of Jesus as he was teaching. And they lower their friend right in front of Jesus. Can you imagine? And it says that Jesus looked and saw their faith and said to this young man, young man, your sins are forgiven. It is not what he or they wanted to hear. They go to the temple for that. They go see a priest to have that taken care of. What they wanted to hear was you're healed, you're well again. And it's not what Jesus' critics wanted to hear. I mean, they would have rather seen Jesus heal the man than Jesus claim the power to forgive sins. Who does Jesus think he is? God. Jesus, realizing what the critics were thinking, then looked at the young man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And he stood up, and he rolled that mat up, and he made his way home. It was the best day in his life. He not only had received his legs back, he had received the forgiveness of God. 
he'd receive the forgiveness of God. And so Peter takes advantage of this miracle that has happened at this gate in order to preach about a greater miracle. And I want us to just kind of dive into his sermon, which has already started. And I want you to listen carefully to what he's saying. It applies to you and me as well. Here we go. In Acts, he says, you rejected his whole, this holy, righteous one. He's talking about Jesus. You rejected this holy, righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. That was Barabbas. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses, he says, of this fact. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're in the audience that day, what a slap in the face, right? I mean, Peter's not holding back. He's saying to the crowd, hey, you guys were around here when Jesus was here. First you were for him, and then you and the leaders were against him. You are guilty of killing the author of life. Now, we all know that we're all guilty of that. The Bible makes that very clear. It was for our sins that Christ died. It's our sins that put him on the cross. But he's saying to them in that context, right there, right then, you are the ones, you are the ones that cheered for him to be crucified while you cheered for a murderer to be released. And then Peter lightens up. Watch what he does here. It's an amazing sermon. Uh, if you want to talk about how to share with, with people who don't know Jesus. He says, friends, because now he's talking to the Jews. This is it's a Jewish audience, right? He says, friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. Isn't that interesting? It's like you really had no comprehension of the depth of what was taking place here. You, had, you just didn't understand who you were crucifying, even though he did all these miracles and he preached all these messages to you. Then look what he says. But, so important. Yep, friends, you did it. It was out of ignorance. But, he says, look, God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. In other words, what he's saying is, God in his providence took what you did and he already had a plan because he knew what you would do. He already had a plan to use that to bring about the redemption of the world. He goes on, he says, now repent, big word, now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord and he will again send you Jesus. So he says, you know, Jesus is going to come again. Your appointed Messiah. For he must, for now, he says, remain in heaven until the time for the final, we've already talked about it, restoration of all things as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. So look what you have here. You've got repent, refresh, remain and restore. And I want to kind of pull those out and go to the board again with you and just point out something really very unique here. So let's go to our board. And again, if you want to draw this out or write this out with me, I, I would encourage you to do that. First of all, what is, what is Peter saying in his sermon we have to do? All of us have to do at some point in our lives. He says, you must repent. All right? 
Then he says, if you repent, God sends refreshment. He says, in the meantime, as God sends this refreshment into your life, as God cleanses you, as he forgives you, as he fills you with his spirit, as he makes all things new inside, all things that pass away, behold, all things become new. As he gives you great hope, he says, in the meantime, Jesus still remains in heaven with the Father. Now, implied in this, and certainly in other scriptures, like Colossians 3 and other places, in John uh, chapter 15, we also remain in this life, here and now, we remain in Christ. We abide in Christ. And like we said over the last couple of weekends, we live two-dimensionally now. There's a part of us that is seated with Christ in the heavenly places where he remains, and it's a part of us that are drawing down the strength he gives us to live in this world. But he says, there is coming a time again. And when that time comes, I'll put it here, Christ will return and there will be a restoration of all things. That is a powerful sermon. That in itself is miraculous. That I, a sinner, can repent, be refreshed, abide, remain in Christ, and anticipate a day when everything will be restored to what God originally intended it to be. You say, Pastor, where, where are you going with all of this? Well, I'll show you where I'm going with this. We kind of come full circle again. And look, here's the bottom line. You ready? God has already performed in your life the only miracle you truly ever need. Remember I said at the, at the beginning here, I said, you know, there's some things that you can't overcome in your life. You need God to do a miracle. There's one thing none of us can ever overcome in our life, and that is our sinfulness. I can never earn God's grace. I can never earn salvation. I can never be good enough for God. There's not a thing in the world I can do to make my way in. And God has done it for me. He did it for me through his son, Jesus. If we can go back to that point, and because of what he did for us in Jesus, we have this absolute hope. We have this absolute hope that we've had a miracle take place in us as we receive Christ into our lives. Do you know that miracle in your life today? See, we all want miracles, but we forget we've received the greatest miracle. Nobody could ever say, God never did a miracle for me. He's done the greatest miracle for you. And listen carefully. He did that miracle in your life and my life so that we could also then, like Peter, in the name of Jesus, give it away to others. Think about this. There are people who have gathered at the gate of your life. There are people all around you with arms lifted, hands extended, that are looking for something to bring hope into their life. And you call yourself Christian, they believe you have what that might be. Now, it might be praying for them to experience a miracle. I have no problem doing that. Do you? Because we see that God does miracles from time to time. It may be helping them out with food. It might be helping them out with shelter. 
It might be serving them in some way. But ultimately, what we have is what they really need. We have the message of salvation. We have the hope of the gospel. And in these days right now, people are searching. They're wondering what is becoming of this world. Everything I put my hope in is fading and falling away. What really matters? And we get to say, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot to, to offer you in and of myself. But I've got a miracle I can pass on to you, a miracle I've received. Let me tell you about who Jesus is. You know, if I go back to our board for just a moment, we oftentimes talk about Adopt 7 around here. And maybe you remember, hopefully I haven't forgotten. But Adopt 7 is this idea that God has put at least seven people around all of our lives who may not know Jesus. They are people who regularly pass through, so to speak, the gate of our lives. We see them all the time. And we've been encouraging you to do three things for them. Remember what they are? We said, number one, pray for them. Just pray for them that if they don't know Jesus, they would come to know Jesus, whether it's through the witness of your life or some other way. But pray for them. Pray for God's blessings on them. Pray for God's healing in them. Pray for God's encouragement. Pray for them to become aware of God. And then secondly, we said, find a way to serve them. Find a way to serve them. Just whether it's a serving with a smile or helping them with something or or uh, giving them an air hug or, or buying some groceries and leaving it at their door or whatever it is, mowing the yard, whatever it is, find a way to just serve them out of the love of Christ. And when the day comes and they say, what is it about you? What's going on in your life? What do you have? I want it too. That's when you share with them. Like Peter, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to you. Look into their eyes like Peter looked into that beggar's eyes. See their hearts. Don't be afraid. Love them in the name of Jesus. And share the difference he can make in their life. Now, like at no other time perhaps since 9-11, people are searching, people are open. And what an opportunity is for you and for me to share this hope of the gospel. I want to tell you one more powerful story, okay? And this story actually comes from a friend of mine in a country in Southeast Asia. And he's given me permission to share this with you. We, Whitdale Church, are seeking to plant 1,000 churches in this country. And we've already begun work there. And we see a few churches beginning. I'm due to travel there next year, do some training, so pray that we get all past this so that can, that can happen. But God is nonetheless at work. Now, in our endeavor to plant these thousand churches, we partner with our friends called TTI. And TTI has a system, and actually I, I need to show that to you again. They have what they call Pauls, all right? And a Paul is a very mature believer. And what a Paul does is a Paul disciples say Timothy, just like in the Bible, Paul and Timothy. This is an up-and-coming, a growing, maturing believer. And Timothy's have a Titus that they will disciple. And a, a Titus is really a brand-new Christian who has a real heart for the Lord and, and, and perhaps wants to become a church planter. Well, in this story, and I've got, I, wish, I can't show you the picture. I can't tell you where and I can't use names, all right? For their protection, but I, I, I see the picture in my mind now. One of the, one of the, 
Paul's, has a Timothy who's discipling a Titus who has an aunt, all right, who is a paraplegic. And uh, this aunt has been a paraplegic now for quite some time. And this Titus takes care of her. Well, when the Timothy comes to visit the Titus, both of them are talking to the aunt about Jesus and praying for her. One day, the Paul felt compelled to join the Timothy to go with the Titus to visit the aunt and shared with her the whole plan, the whole hope, the whole gift of salvation and said to the aunt, God can both heal you and God can save you. The aunt went to bed that night and like we hear from so many places around the world, she had a dream and in that dream, Jesus came to her in a white linen garment, glowing, shining. And he spoke to her in her heart language. And he said to her, Obey and follow me. And she said, No, who are you? And she said, He didn't answer me. And then he said to me, If you take a bath, you will become like a newborn baby. And she said, in my dream, he poured water over me. She said, I felt so refreshed. Remember that passage I just read in Acts? She said, I felt so refreshed. And then in my dream, she says, I saw myself standing next to him right before I woke up. And when I woke up, I decided I would try to stand up. And she stood up and stumbled her way to where she knew there was a Bible and opened it up and it happened to open to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. She accepted Christ and she's waiting to be baptized. Isn't that exciting? But here's what's really powerful. Listen to this. In the home was a person that would visit every day who specialized in helping care for paraplegics. And when this Paul was sharing the gospel with the aunt, that person was there and listened to the whole thing. It so affected their life that not knowing about the dream and not knowing what happened to the aunt, they went home and were so troubled by what they heard that they literally threw the idols out of their house and asked Jesus to become their Savior. And now that person is waiting to be baptized. Folks can't make it up. God is at work. Despite this virus, God is at work. You know, God didn't create the virus. God didn't create sin. God didn't create suffering. God didn't create death. He hates those things more than you hate them. And he's provided a way to overcome them. And it starts with the greatest miracle that's available to everyone. And it is the miracle of salvation. Isn't it exciting to be the church of Jesus in these days? Not easy, but isn't it exciting? And the doors that he's opening up for us. Listen, Whitdale has never closed. We haven't closed down. We're just kind of scattered right now like missionaries where we are. We're like little house churches all over the Twin Cities. And there God has given this great opportunity for us to continue the work of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus 
building and spreading and growing his church one soul at a time. Listen, after I pray for you, I want you to stay on with me because Pastor Kyle and Pastor Luke are going to share with you an exciting story of a Wooddaler who is making a difference in her own neighborhood. First, let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for these difficult days that spur us on, Lord, to look more to you and less to this world. Father God, give us wisdom in these days to live our faith out loud wherever we are. Not obnoxiously, oh God, you don't want that, but lovingly. And when those moments come, when people ask us about you, God, help us to be ready to share the miracle that we've already experienced. His name is Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you, and I'll be with you next weekend.